This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, welcome to our second panel discussion of the afternoon. I'm introducing uh, the moderator for the panel. Emily Roxworthy is our moderator. She's the current chair, as you may have uh, noted earlier, of the University Committee on Affirmative Action and Diversity, um, which, which is, make, plays a very important role in these issues system-wide. She's a member of our steering committee for this program and a professor of theater here at UCSD. She's been heavily involved in system-wide review of APM 210 and campus efforts to diversify the faculty. So, Emily. Thanks, Susan. As a professor of theater, I actually have an enormous amount of uh, respect and awe for this panel um, on data, um, because I don't do a lot of that, but it's extremely important in understanding issues around diversity. If I can just say a couple things from our steering committee meeting that I uh, gleaned this morning about data. Data show us what the real issues are, um, and the scale of of the UC data set can be a model um, and a leader for um, uh, universities across the nation. Data give us an accurate picture of our institutions that we need in order to identify the best practices for change. We could be doing something. We could be doing more if we understood the situation better. So I have great hopes for this panel uh, giving us uh, a look into that. Our first speaker is uh, Professor Mary Blair Loy, who is an associate professor of sociology here at UC San Diego. Uh, She's also the director of graduate studies and the director of the Center for Research on Gender in the Professions. She currently has as an NSF advance grant uh, to study cumulative disadvantage among STEM faculty. Mary. Uh, good afternoon. This uh, presentation is based on a much larger project, and the co-authors on this particular paper for today are Jean Ferrante, Aaron Seck, and Laura Rogers. So here is the proposed elements for one campus's strategic plan. Um, This may look familiar to some of you. Attract, retain, and grow a top quality faculty body. Enhance equity, diversity, and inclusion on campus. Create an engaging environment for students uh, with comprehensive advising and mentorship and grow a high-quality and cost-effective graduate program. I'd like to focus on the first two elements in this proposed plan. According to our former uh, UC president, Mark Udoff, we all know that a more diverse faculty will be an increasingly important measure of a great university. Uh, However, um, in fact, many colleagues may view the two goals that I outlined above as potentially inconsistent, um, valuing um, the highest quality, most excellent faculty, and valuing a search for greater diversity, equity, and inclusion. Using data on STEM faculty at one top-ranked campus, uh, this paper will explore schemas of scientific excellence, uh, explore the cultural belief that valuing excellence and valuing diversity are incompatible, 
and analyze uh, one of the unintended consequences um, when diverse faculty, diverse individuals are devalued in departments. Uh, the sample comes from um, academic personnel data for this uh, campus population, uh, survey da data uh, on over 50% of them, and interview data on 85 individuals. So schemas of excellence. Um, these are connected to the schemas that Joan Williams was speaking about over lunch. Um, they, uh, schemas of excellence define particular traits as markers of success. Um, and in science, these include things such as competitiveness, self-promotion, leadership, risk-taking, and being a good mentor and teacher. These schemas are often perceived as objective indicators of merit, um, yet these excellent schemas can define uh, and justify interactions that fail to fully value researchers who, at first glance, do not appear to be automatically connected with that schema. Um, so here's some um, ways in which schemas of excellence uh, can be gleaned in everyday departmental interaction, as reported by some of our interview respondents. One STEM faculty member said, if the best person in the pool for hire is from an underrepresented group, it's irrelevant. The best person gets the job. And if that best person is underrepresented, they get the job. Uh, a critic of this um, perspective warns that many colleagues still do not believe that women or minorities are as excellent as white men. Um, I think there's still a barrier because you don't look like you're excellent. Even though you have all these same credentials, you're not what looks excellent. Um, and so at a very implicit level, there can often be a perceived contradiction between valuing quality and excellence and diversity as a goal. And this has come up um, numerous times today in um, our roundtable. Um, here's another uh, a quote from another interview. Um, another faculty member says, I'm not necessarily giving you my personal view, just stating the things that I think uh, many people may believe. They automatically think that you, a woman or a URM, are not as good, and therefore the bar goes up higher for you. So if people think, oh, she got that position because she's a woman, um, and I'm sure there are people who think that, then I think the bar would be higher. So we know that demographics shape how we view competence. Um, but beyond demographics, what qualities do respondents think are the most highly valued in their science or engineering discipline? And to try to get a handle on this, um, our survey asked respondents to rate on a scale of one to five the extent to which each of a long list of characteristics describe a typical successful person in their discipline. Um, and here we simply present the means of each characteristic rank ordered. Um, and the most valued characteristic, um, which respondents believe is valued in their discipline, um, would be a successful person should be competitive. Um, number two, a strong communicator. Number three, a self-promoter. Number four, a strong leader, risk taker, mentor, and teacher. Um, and as you'll see, number 12 is cares about diversity, which is way down at the bottom of the list, one of the three most devalued characteristics, right above hobbies and fashion. So 
if respondents report on their disciplinary um, schemas of excellence, um, there is a uh, contradiction between the first um, element in that proposed strategic plan, uh, grow a top quality faculty body, and the second element, enhance diversity. Um, and then the uh, third element that we looked at in creating an engaging environment for students um, is those, those are fairly highly ranked as the departments report on their disciplinary cultures. Um, but before our survey asked about their reports on disciplinary schemas of excellence, we asked them to identify the extent to which these characteristics describe them as individuals. And Here's the list. Um, the first top seven, there's quite a bit of overlap um, between the identified self-characteristics and those that people believe are valued in their discipline. Five of the top seven self-characteristics are also valued within the discipline, leadership, um, competitiveness, mentoring, communication, and teaching. Um, the most uh, stark disconnect is that faculty on the campus we are studying um, put diversity in their top five. Um, so diversity here in the self-characteristic is in red, cares about diversity. Um, and so they value it much more highly um, as a characteristic in themselves than they view in the broader discipline. Um, as a self-characteristic, caring about diversity is also correlated uh, with other um, traits uh, that they view as valuable, such as being a strong leader, a good mentor, and empathetic. And there's a moderate correlation with being a skilled teacher. What I'll be suggesting in a moment is that this is an optimistic finding, and there may be a way that people can leverage uh, their self-characteristics and their own understanding of valuing diversity as A, important, and B, consistent with other valued schemas of excellence, um, and help diffuse that norm more broadly across the disciplines. We also talked to um, our respondents about the recognizing contributions to diversity statements, um, which we have discussed earlier today. Um, and there is, as has been reported by others this morning, some backlash. Um, some folks view these as administratively burdensome or um, privileging certain research topics over others. Um, but optimistically, for many respondents, um, this rule has prompted conversations, uh, just as we saw today in our um, rating of the diversity statements with the clickers, um, it's prompted conversations that make schemas of excellence less taken for granted and more inclusive. Um, and as one respondent uh, reported, with people broadening searches um, and more awareness of biases and trying to open up things so that excellence maybe has a broader definition, that has really helped to get women, I think, and diverse faculty on campus. I think it's really been effective. So STEM faculty on the campus that we study uh, could play a leadership role in showing how promoting diversity is consistent with, rather than contradictory to, other value traits in the discipline. Um, and our, uh, the faculty on this campus uh, play leadership roles in the discipline in a variety of ways. 
Um, and an additional leverage point for diffusing uh, a new schema of excellence would be to train our graduate students and how to articulate their own um, contributions to diversity. So here is a, a faculty member reporting um, on what they think would be confusing for an applicant to UCSD. So a junior level applicant asked to fill out one of these diversity statements. So this faculty member says, mimicking what a student um, applicant uh, might be thinking, so then I don't understand it. I know how to write a discussion about my research and how good it is. I know how to write about my teaching. I know how to write about my professional activity. But boy, I'm a PhD student, and I haven't done anything in diversity. I can't put anything in there. I don't know what to put. I don't know where to start. I don't know what they're looking for. I've got no chance uh, to get this job. So consistent with the fourth proposed strategic goal that I opened the conversation with, um, my presentation with, uh, growing a high quality graduate program, uh, one of the things that we could encourage faculty to do is explicitly mentor students to be um, carriers of this new norm, to articulate, to understand and articulate the value of diversity, um, whether or not the schools to which they apply require this statement in application. Um, packets. Um, so let's quickly talk about um, a negative consequence for failing to do this um, for departments in which the contributions of diverse individuals are not valued as highly as similar contributions of uh, uh, individuals who are overrepresented in the STEM disciplines. Job satisfaction is very important for faculty, and particularly um, the STEM faculty at this, dis at this university, this campus, who strongly identify, personally identify with their research. Um, previous literature has found that on average in academia, women and underrepresented minorities are less satisfied than men. Um, and in our study, we find that more important than individual demography in predicting job satisfaction is whether or not people perceive that diverse individuals are devalued um, on their campus and in their departments. So we're looking beyond individual identities and trying to understand people reporting on department and university culture. Um, so we measure whether how strongly faculty perceive that Either we have two different measures. Women faculty must work harder than men to convince people of their competence, or that racial and ethnic minority faculty must work harder than non-minority faculty to convince colleagues of their competence. And what we find is that those who do have a perception that women or URMs do face a higher bar and are not fairly valued, these folks also have a lower level of overall satisfaction at this campus, um, regardless of their own demographic characteristic. Um, this is a preliminary regression result. We want to do uh, a little bit more um, tweaking of the model. But um, net of multiple controls, including gender, race, ethnicity, LGB, identification, um, parenthood status, salary, step, et cetera, um, there's a statistically significant relationship between the belief that 
um, there's a problem here. Women faculty are devalued. They have to work harder than men to convince colleagues of their competence. That this um, awareness uh, lowers um, job satisfaction for faculty who are reporting on this problem. And the relationship is um, marginally statistically significant for minority faculty, um, which is still striking given the relatively small sample size. So valuing diversity then, um, the flip side of this is that valuing diversity can contribute to a more positive and productive working environment for all faculty. It's not a, a way to specially um, help out or uh, correct past wrongs for faculty with particular um, demographic characteristics. It's a culture that benefits all faculty in a unit. So in conclusion, um, the campus we study seems to be ahead of many of the broader STEM disciplines in linking the value of diversity to other values that the discipline holds dear, um, and that faculty in our sample could help diffuse these norms um, to the broader discipline, and there are real costs for failing to do so. Thank you. Our next two speakers um, are Mark Goulden, um, who uh, researches work, family, and equity issues among academics, particularly at UC. Um, and he uh, is also the director of data initiatives, faculty equity, and welfare at UC Berkeley along with Matt Xavier, who is a data coordinator for the Office of Academic Personnel at the UC Office of the President. He currently leads a component of the UC advanced paid effort known as the Recruitment Data Analysis Project. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Emily. Uh, today I'm going to do part one of um, using data to better understand the faculty review process. Uh, I'm going to take a highly aggregated or system-wide perspective and then pass it on to Mark and he'll look at a more uh, campus-wide perspective. But before I start, since we have a special guest in our audience, uh, Chancellor uh, Emeritus Marianne Fox is here, um, I have a quick story. Yes. Thank you, Marianne. I have a quick story about Marianne and her, um, her effort to overcome barriers. She was a postdoc uh, researcher at the University of Maryland in 1976, and she applied for a position at University of Texas for an assistant professor level job. She got an interview, and uh, she, she flew to, to uh, Texas, and it was a great interview. Things were going well, except for the very end, where the entire chemistry department met with her, and every member of the faculty was male. And uh, there were some questions asked, and at one point, one of the senior faculty stood up and said, there is no way I will ever let a woman be hired in this department until the day I die. Well, Marianne was excited up to that point, and uh, <laughs> she flew back to Maryland a little bit discouraged, but she knew she, she was a hard worker and she was going to be successful. About, uh, what was it, a month or two later, the chair of the chemistry department called and said, we want to offer you the position. And of course, she was very surprised. And she asked, well, what about grumpy old man? What, uh, <laughs> what, are, what does he think? And the chair said, well, he's passed away. <laughs> and not only are we going to give you the job, 
but you're going to get his office. <laughs> so uh, Marianne broke the gender barrier at the chemistry department at the University of Texas. So let's, let's give her a nice round of applause. And this is, uh, this is a picture of Marianne receiving the National Medal of Science at the White House. It was awarded by, clearly, President Obama. As you can tell, this is pre-government shutdown, so Obama still has uh, dark hair. Uh, so thank you, Marianne, and thanks for being here. One of the things I do in my job is I look at uh, the recruitment data in terms of how you see hires uh, uh, our faculty by discipline, gender, race, ethnicity. But today I'm going to talk briefly about the review process because that's the theme of today's, uh, today's roundtable. Uh, and I'm going to cover four distinct areas. One would be the CAP gender and ethnicity composition. CAP, as you know, is the Committee on Academic Personnel. Uh, we're going to talk briefly about the faculty, uh, the Harry faculty survey results from 2010-11. This is a survey that's done basically every three years throughout the U.S. Uh, I'm going to briefly talk about the UC STEM assessment professor study that uh, we started last year at the behest of uh, Vice Provost Carlson. And then we'll talk about um, a transition study when we looked at professors going from associate professor to professor. Okay, so let's start first with the composition of uh, academic personnel committees. Uh, this is a, a chart demonstrating the percent of women. This is aggregate data, right? Because every year there's variability in the numbers um, if you look at race, ethnicity, or gender. So what we did was we aggregated the numbers of the CAP committees uh, for a four-year period. And then we created a benchmark um, from fall 2009. So the blue numbers here indicate the percentage of women by campus, and then the red bars are the actual benchmarks if you looked at the total number of women faculty by campus. Um, as you can quickly see, some campuses uh, do a lot better than others, but it looks like it's fairly good news in some ways because the gender composition, the, the, the women composition here for the committees uh, is, is fairly well represented and, and overrepresented, it looks like, in most cases. However, when we look at race ethnicity, it's uh, a much different uh, picture. So what you see here is the um, underrepresented minorities, and in this grouping that means um, Chicano, Latino, Hispanic, Native American, and um, African American. Okay? So if you uh, look at, for example, Berkeley, Davis, and Irvine, they, uh, it appears that they're underrepresented for this time period. And again, this is just one, this is a four-year period. If we aggregated for a longer t uh, period of time, it may uh, present a different picture. Um, Merced looks pretty good. It's, they're, they're above 10%. And uh, every campus that starts with SAN, S-A-N, uh, looks like they're overrepresented. Okay, so interesting, uh, interesting data here. Okay, so now we'll talk, we'll sh shift to the faculty survey that is done by Harry. Harry is the Higher Education Research, Research Institute. They're located at UCLA. This survey has been done for decades, so they have lots and lots of data to analyze. Uh, in this survey, there were almost 29,000 uh, faculty respondents. It covered 417 institutions, only two of which were UC. Um, this, is done on, uh, this survey is done online now on a three-year cycle. They're currently going to uh, start administering the cycle, or the, the, the next cycle, 
uh, this fall. And there's essentially 51 questions that faculty are asked. Um, what's great about this data is, is that they ask about the review process and the promotion process and whether or not this causes stress. So we'll go through some of the information here. Some of the demographics that are included are discipline, rank, gender, race, ethnicity, marital status, parental status, number of children. So these are important data elements uh, when we look at the review process. They're important to know, it's especially when we uh, look at, at issues affecting women faculty that have to take care of children or um, parents, what have you. Also, one other point, UCLA um, will be using the survey when the next cycle to assess their diversity efforts. So that's an interesting thing to share today. One of the things we wanted to talk about, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about Harry today was because we don't really have a system-wide way of collecting qualitative data. And as you all know, taking qualitative and quantitative, quantitative data and synthesizing them will help us give a, the best picture possible of what's really happening and then figure out actions to, to make things better, okay? Okay, so let's look at the, uh, this was from question 28, which was indicate the extent to which you agree or disagree, and then they had a series of sub-questions. So uh, this is a chart showing, based on uh, sub-question R, what uh, do they feel, strongly feel, or somewhat uh, agree uh, that the criteria for advancement and promotion decisions are clear, okay? So again, there are four ways to, to respond agree strongly, agree somewhat, disagree somewhat, disagree strongly, okay? So this is what the chart looks like. This chart shows by rank, uh, which is somewhat interesting. As you can see, professors feel it's most clear, but they're already at the highest level. Uh, let's go to the next one now. This is the breakdown by gender and race ethnicity uh, for the same question. Um, as you can see, uh, there's a, a, a gender difference of uh, five, over five percentage points. Um, we don't, we haven't really tested or asked Terry to test for statistical significance for this because we basically asked for this about three weeks ago. But um, it, there's clearly a difference here. Uh, as we move into race ethnicity, uh, American Indian or Native American uh, actually feel or agree strongly or more strongly than, than any other race uh, or ethnicity here. Uh, the lowest is um, multiracial and then African-American. And I, I didn't have time to change the label, so I apologize for that. Okay, so there's clearly differences, and we need to test uh, statistically for these. Uh, question 23, then, uh, asks how satisfied people are with their jobs. The sub-question in this group was uh, how satisfied are they with prospects for career advancement? So these responses are based on whether they're marked satisfied or very satisfied, and we have rank, broad discipline, and public and private. We'll just qu uh, focus quickly here on the discipline, uh, disciplinary differences, uh, and as you can see, social sciences, uh, that group, that broad aggregation of disciplines is the most satisfied, least was arts and humanities. The STEM, excuse me, is about 50%. STEM, in, uh, when we talk about STEM, we define STEM basically by the National Science Foundation standards. So we're, we're talking physical sciences, we're talking life sciences, biology, we're talking economics, psychology, sociology, uh, and I think I'm missing some other one, but Mark will remind me. 
Same question, now here we have the gender uh, and race ethnicity results as well. Here for this question, uh, there's a, a much more marked contrast in the difference between men and women. Men were at 59%, uh, almost 60%. Women were uh, 12%, almost 12% below that number. So what are the reasons why that's happening? Um, that needs further study. In terms of race, ethnicity, Latinos, uh, uh, Chicano, Latino, Hispanic, uh, indicated um, compared relative to the other uh, ethnicities, um, they were actually satisfied or very satisfied, which is very interesting. So last question was uh, indicate the extent to which um, faculty uh, felt something, a particular issue was a source of stress. Uh, in this case, um, th these are the percentages where faculty marked that it was an extensive source of stress. Uh, and um, when we talk about the stressor, it's the review promotion process. So what stressor uh, and what, to what percent was it uh, not a very good um, scenario? So here we have by rank and then once again by discipline. Uh, interesting that social sciences in the previous slide was um, they were satisfied, but they also are, feel it's more extensive stress than the other disciplines. Uh, for STEM, we see uh, a, a much smaller number, 4%, over 4% lower. Uh, so this is very interesting. And then the last same question, uh, whether or not the review promotion process was an extensive <clears throat> source of um, Stress. This is by gender and race ethnicity. Women uh, respond. Uh, Twenty-one percent of women respondents uh, said yes. It's it's an extensive source of stress compared to fifteen percent for men. So again, that looks like it could be significant, but we do need to test for that. Uh, for race ethnicity, uh, Latinos who were very satisfied in the previous slide, uh, they're very satisfied with career prospects. But on the other hand, they're really feeling the stress. So uh, again, that we need to examine um, the the reasons for that and, and what's what's taking place. Okay. Um, okay. So these uh, the next series of charts will be uh, they should be in your data packet in the uh, portfolio that you received. This is a um, what we did was we looked at all new hires. Uh, we created a cohort from 2003 to 2007 of just assistant professors who were in the STEM fields. I've described what those were. And um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to determine if there were any gender differences be between um, genders when, um, within the STEM fields uh, uh, to when they actually received their tenure. And on the bottom axis here, we have year from hire. And as you can see, the lines start to diverge at about year two uh, and about year four. You know, there, it, there looks like a difference. The blue line is, again, females. Um, we, st we tested this for a significance that was not significant. However, that doesn't mean there are other issues that um, can uh, be related to uh, receiving tenure. And that's evidenced by this slide where we show a marked difference between male and female in terms of resignation. So when faculty go through the review process, um, in some ways they're subtly known they're not going to get tenure. Um, what happens? What happens then? Um, they usually resign. And the rate for women, uh, in this case, from this cohort, um, is higher. Okay, uh, last slide. 
uh, is um, we looked at associate professors going to prof the professor rank and how many years that took based on race ethnicity. And here we saw a significant difference between underrepresented minorities uh, and uh, either Asian or white populations. Now, some of the things that are affecting this chart and the previous ones are the distribution of gender and race ethnicity throughout disciplines, and also the tenure rates by discipline, and those are evidenced by, um, again, we will provide these slides. This uh, shows you uh, the gender uh, distribution by, um, by discipline. Here is the race ethnicity. As you can see, it, it varies quite a bit. Uh, and then finally, the tenure rates um, are, are very stark um, based on discipline. So PTEM, uh, faculty in PTEM reach tenure at higher, much higher rates than, say, the red line, which is humanities. Uh, there's a big difference. So because we have uh, more women or less women in the PTEMs, um, the effect on the previous slides you don't see as, as much. Uh, the impact is less. So there's a lot to consider. There's lots of uh, uh, basically uh, layers of the onion that we need to peel back. And we, we do need to spend much more time on these types of questions. Okay? And with that, Emily? All right. Um, I've been tasked with looking at uh, data from the campuses. And so I think this is, in general, great that we're focusing on this because the faculty review process and advancement process tends to be opaque to people. They, they don't really know in terms of rates, whether it's a fair process, what it, what it looks like. And so what I'm going to show you today is a number of examples from around the campuses in terms of data representations. Um, and also, uh, some of the findings are very interesting. So I'll briefly touch on those. So the first set of uh, data findings are actually coming out of Davis. And these are done by um, Kim Shaman and also by Maureen Stanton. And um, what this is showing is uh, from 2008 to 2012, this is the time to tenure for women and men in STEM. That's the top two bars. It's the bright blue to the left. And then time to full. And um, the general pattern there is that women take somewhat longer. Uh, below is URM and non-URM, um, and the URM apparently are taking, taking longer at time to full. Uh, the great thing that they did in this data is they used regressions to control for field effects. So a lot of times people look at STEM, and STEM is huge. It's gigantic. You can, you can just hear how heterogeneous it is. What they did, Kim kind of bril brilliantly solved for that with regression. So this is one approach at looking at advancement. A second one is, um, and I like this a lot, they had a very uh, dense table with incredible data on it, and I think some of this table is, is in the packet that you have. Another issue they looked at is rates of acceleration, and the red bars are women, and the blue bars are men, and I'll just note as you look across there, so rates of acceleration to coming up for tenure promotion, so basically coming up early, full professor promotion, assistant merits, associate merits, full professor merits. So in all cases, men are proportionally more likely to be accelerated. 
Then uh, last view on this is looking at actual tenure promotion, the rates of actually advancing. And in this case, um, tenure promotion, full professor, assistant merits, really the women are doing just as well as the men, but the time is longer and the coming up rates, um, there's, there's maybe less risk taking. And uh, what I'm not showing here is that the individuals who come up early their rate of success actually is lower. So there is kind of a risk-taking component to coming up early. So that's the first set of types of data. Here, uh, then, is data from UC San Diego, and this is from Gene Ferrante. And this um, data, I think, is incredibly hopeful and compelling. Uh, what this is showing, and Gene, please, if I, if I miss, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong here, but what this is showing is in the bio-bibliographic bio, section F, where faculty will say during the review process what their contributions to diversity are, um, they have been coding within the engineering school here the percentage of individuals who are actually filling that in. And, I th and obviously, you, you're, in, you're suggesting they should be filling it in because the rates are going from 2008, 50% all the way up to 88%. This is just huge change. That's massive change. And um, in the preceding uh, session, Marianne and Joan were talking a lot about the family-friendly policies. Those were first passed in 1988 in the system. And so we, you know, we came back to them in 2006, Angie and myself and Marianne and Carrie, and we've, we've been working on those policies. So it can take a long time to get these policies really nailed down and working well. So this is incredibly encouraging. Yay. Yay. So you guys are really... I, uh, we already um, had one reference to Gladwell's work. Um, one that I like is the tipping point, where he talks about contagion theory. And I think for policy change, contagion theory is incredibly important. The idea that at some point it becomes normalized. It becomes saturated. And once you get there, everybody just assumes this is how we do it. Um, so that's very encouraging. Here you can see um, just by rank in 2012, and so not surprisingly, the full professors are less likely, and the assistants are eagerly um, filling these out. And then um, the bottom part here, actually, both of these scales are the number of words that they're putting in there. Um, you can see that the number of words in the diversity statements are increasing and we saw that specificity in these statements matter. So you have people that are increasingly um, getting used to this, to this uh, type of effort. And then skipping to Berkeley data. Um, so this comes out of the 2009 Faculty Climate Survey that was put together with Shelley Zedek, Angie Stacy and myself, and this is just satisfaction with the merit review process. And I'm just showing you this just for context. We probably referenced it already, but you'll see the full professors above scale are very satisfied. <laughs> so, so it's more or less a reification, to reification process. 
Uh, this is not, not really a huge surprise. Associates, the poor associates and low full. They're, you know, you, just on every satisfaction indicator, this is the population that really is challenged in a lot of ways. And the assistants come in enthusiastic and <laughs> really excited about this. Um, so just keep that in mind as context. Um, and then... We start to get to some pretty neat slides. Well, I'll save my story for the next one. Um, but this one is looking at, we ask the faculty, what are the review criteria that are really important in, your, in your, late, your most recent reviews? At the very top, journal articles, peer review, 89% say that. And the point is very important in their reviews. Books, you know, it's going to depend if you're a book-based discipline or not, drops down. Follow the list down, you know, 16, 17, 18, 21, mentoring undergraduate students, promoting diversity, 25, mentoring colleagues, 28, community-based service. And um, the next slide I'm going to show you is a compilation of this scale, which is asking them how important is it, and a second scale that Shelley Zedek designed um, which is how important should it be? So it's comparing the two. And when they're asked what should be more important, should it be more important, mentoring undergraduate students, half of our faculty said that it should be more important than it currently is. Um, obviously, journal articles at 28 couldn't go very far because it was very, it was exceptionally important to begin with. Um, but I, I kind of shaded the ones here, mentoring colleagues, community-based service, promoting diversity. So these are pretty big, these are pretty big numbers. And doing a few breakouts, this is where it starts to get kind of more detailed. But if we look at that specific issue and we do a breakout by rank, um, what we see over here, full professor above scale, not too many of those individuals think that these criteria should be more important. Um, but you go down the ranks, and the assistants and the associates are really saying that these issues are important. You've got mentoring undergraduates. Almost two-thirds of this population are saying it should be more important. Down here, promoting diversity almost half of the population. Um, so that's, that's important to know, that these kind of junior faculty are interested in having more indicators of, of promotion um, and merit review, and to have them weighted more. And this is a gender split. Um, so that's, this, this is um, just chi-square values. It's not controlled for rank, so there could be some effect here. But essentially, the women on most of these, uh, these additional criteria that are listed on this screen are suggesting that they think that these criteria should be weighted more. And again, the numbers are big. For men, they're pretty big too, though. If you look at, for example, mentoring colleagues, 44% are saying that it should be more important. It's just statistically, they're not as likely as women to say that. And then more slides here uh, by ethnicity, white, Asian, underrepresented minorities. Um, clearly, underrepresented minorities um, are more favorable to increasing the weight of these. 
And then lastly, field effects. And I think field effects are really important. So uh, if you actually read from the right to the left, this group here, public health, education, social welfare, these are the groups that are engaged in public scholarship um, or what we sometimes call translational research. There's incredibly good integration between research and action and attempts to make the world essentially uh, to directly make the world a better place and to have diverse populations served. So they're very likely to want to weight these criteria more. And then it's kind of a wash more or less in the middle. And then on the left side is physical science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's the fields which are more difficult. And I, and I, think, it's a non I think it's a non-trivial problem. I think the, the, the key to a lot of this is figuring out how do you integrate translational research and this type of focus into PATEM. And um, I think we've got some ideas about it, but we need to do more work on it. Um, and then one last quick set of data slides. Um, another thing that we did is we asked, what, are the, what do they actually do, faculty, which policies do they actually use when they're doing their reviews? And almost everyone universally wrote a summary of their research, teaching, and service to be included. Um, this red um, shading here is not knowing about a policy. We have a policy where you can request an extra step merit um, for an accomplishment. Not so many people knew about that. And then there's a whole other series. We had a whole series of these. You'll get this slide. But at the bo bottom here, requested an extra merit increase one time for excellence, teaching service, or diversity-related work. 8% used that policy. 31% didn't know about it in 2009. So as I mentioned before, you can, you can have incredible policies on the books, but it really is the devil in the details of how you get those in and get them functioning. And if you look at this, you might think, oh, well, no one wants it or no one needs it. But a lot of times people won't take policies because they're afraid to use them or they don't know about them. Um, so I think there's hope here. Requested a career equity review, only 3%. 34% did not know that was a policy in 2009. So in summary, uh, there's a lot of amazing ways to look at this data. As we've already mentioned, the UC system has incredible scale for data. When we pull data, we're just unparalleled. In addition to that, the UC system historically is very focused, in my opinion, on transparency. We're actually willing to look at data and to discuss it and to share with other people. And there are a lot of institutions that won't do that. But I think that we are uniquely positioned to really explore these issues in empirical, data-driven ways. Um, and here, again, were the examples. We can look at promotion, merit advancements, um, biobibliographic submissions and, and behavior, faculty survey data. Um, and through all of this, I think we can make a more effective and equitable review process. Thank you.
Okay, so we have about 10 minutes for questions. I'll just uh, turn it right to any of you. If you can come up to the microphone, please. This was just fascinating, and I'm uh, delighted to see all these data. I'm curious just to know, with the advancement data for assistant professors, whether we look at elapsed time or time elapsed time on the clock. It was elapsed time. Yeah, we didn't make any adjustments at all. Uh, yeah, we didn't, we didn't uh, do that, but that's a good point. Yes, absolutely. That, that was actually my question, too, but um, I had two other points I wanted to make. One is um, I would strongly encourage you not to um, distribute the data you showed in the first part of the presentation until you actually have error bars on those graphs because I'm really concerned that um, if these data get out, people are going to make conclusions that aren't validated by the statistical significance of them. I don't know. I look at these kind of data all the time, and I think it's... It's a little too early to, to make any conclusions from that. Um, and then I had a question. Did you look at salaries? Which, no, I'm sorry, which data were you referring to? The, the, the bar graphs in the first part of the presentation where you were showing. Yeah, the Harry study. Yeah, the exactly. That's Harry, that's yeah. Harry National data yeah. that yeah. Matt did. Yeah. yeah, they submitted that. We asked for that about three weeks ago, and they made those slides. Um, they were very kind to do that. You just at the see last the UT yeah. Tribune going nuts over some of that Point, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Points well taken. <laughs> and then we'll yeah. find out later on that it wasn't significant. But, right. for the whole um, but then have, have yes. you looked at, um, in the UC system-wide data, have you looked at faculty salaries? Can, can I make a comment on that? That was for, you understand that Harry data is from 400 national universities, right? So it's not directly reflecting on the UC. And the data system. is normalized, too, by the way. I don't know if that makes a difference. It doesn't you, make a difference. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, hi. As the uh, lone student representative in the room, I just wanted to say um, I really appreciated in the first presentation how you talked about the importance of using your graduate students to promote these diversity initiatives on campus because the chancellor spoke this morning about 2050. In 2050, the graduate students now are going to be your faculty. So if we want to affect real change in the world for the future, we need to get into people when they're young, when they're still students, and instill these values. So one thing, I mean, you're all administrators, high-ranked faculty members, people of importance in this room. And one thing that I would really challenge you is to look at the culture on your campus with your graduate students. Because I know, at least on my campus, there is a huge culture of fear among graduate students that if we go out of our labs and um, away from our research to participate in things like diversity workshops, professional development, these kinds of things that were looked on as bad graduate students that... Uh, aren't doing our real work in the lab. And I think that that's something that's... I know it occurs on our campus because we have done extensive studies about it in our GSA. And from talking to colleagues, I think it's a system-wide problem. And I think if we were to address that on a system-wide level, that we would go a long way towards promoting diversity on campus. So uh, I'm David Meyer from UCSD. Uh, I have two comments and one question. The, the first comment is to reiterate the comment that you made. The, all the bar charts you showed were not just the Harry bar charts. You showed bar charts for UC data as well. And you drew conclusions from those. Um, for example, the, the, uh, distinct, the uh, relative numbers of people on caps, for example. Those bar charts should all have some sort of error bars on them because otherwise we can't tell if, how significant it is, especially when you're talking, for example, about the number of underrepresented minority people on those committees. 
those numbers are so small already, it's probably right. one person difference that you're talking about. So it, it, they're, they're potentially misleading. Um, and I know you've done those statistical significance because you commented on them a couple of times, but they should be on the charts. Um, uh, another comment uh, is um, relative to the chart, the chart you showed with the, the red on the left and the green on the right, um, pointing out that the uh, uh, disciplines that are involved in translational efforts are different than, um, say, math and physics and engineering. And then you, you sort of made a, a policy comment at the end there, um, saying that those disciplines should be more involved in translational work. Mm -hmm. I disagree completely. Pure math and theoretical physics, it's not their job to be doing translational research. That, that's not what they're supposed to be doing. No, no, no. I, say, I, I said that. Um, my perspective is if you want to increase diversity in those fields, that if you could link it, that that would probably be a successful strategy. You may, you may disagree with that, but I'm just saying that as a strategy, that would, would probably be effective. And feel free to do that with number theory. I, I have no idea what you're thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, and then the question is, um, the charts that you showed, which um, indicated the progression from uh, to tenure and progression from assistant to f associate to full uh, professor, um, I was curious to see the fractions at the end. A couple times went down. Uh, I'm not aware that anybody ever gets demoted. Um, from full professor to associate professor, although sometimes I think maybe that would be a good thing. But um, So there were a couple of plots where the, the, the cumulative number went down. Um, I suspect that has to do with people leaving. Um, and in particular, I know in, in our department, almost everybody who, whom we hire on tenure track ends up getting tenure. When we lose people who are hired as assistant professor, it's because they get a better job somewhere else. It's not because they're not going to make it to associate professor. So the question is, do your charts reflect that or not? Which chart are you talking about? I'm sorry. The Was chart it the which showed the cumulative number of people who made it from assistant to associate professor, for example. You know, I don't remember off the top of my head, but maybe we can, if you want to talk afterwards, we can, I can help get Because I've got the data with me. We could look at it and go to Whatever detail you want. Thanks. Susan, I think you were next. Okay. Um, I'm Susan Drangely from UCLA. Just two points about the, the CAP um, information in the beginning, and I just raise this as points for people to think about. Uh, one is what are the criteria for being selected mm -hmm. for CAP? So I know a couple years back we had a system-wide discussion about this, and at UCLA the bar was set at being a step five full professor and above, which automatically eliminates a lot of the both gender and uh, race, ethnicity, diversity in the pool available. And then the other one was about the nominating process for something like CAP. So at UCLA, our com committee on committees, you know, does that, but they have expressed to us over the years that they didn't really know a lot of the more diverse faculty members. And so we, you know, because it's kind of a self-perpetuating thing based on who's on the committee and who they know, et cetera. So our office had been uh, providing kind of lists of people like across the whole campus for consideration. So these are just some thoughts on, 
you know, what's behind those numbers. Right. And, and what the data really doesn't tell you about the underrepresented minorities is because the numbers are so small, they're asked repeatedly to serve on committees and it gets draining and time consuming. So that's another. Thank you, Susan. As a statistician, um, I do want to encourage error bars where appropriate, but I also want to point out that some of your graphs, such as the CAP data, are population data, and error bars do not make sense on population data. Thank you, Herbie. So I wanted to make a quick comment about um, Susan's comment about the CAP, because I'm actually on the committee on committees here at UCSD right now, and we were very frustrated with not having easy access to um, lists of faculty and all of that. And um, we actually recently encouraged our, um, I don't even know who these people are. I guess it's the Office of, who is it that runs CAP? the committee on committees. Anyway, it's the administrative people. And we told them, you need to revamp this website and you need to make it searchable and you need to get us all these data in a way that we can get it easily. And they did it over the summer. So you may want to contact um, our administrative people and find out how they did that because it's made a huge difference already in our ability to see a wider pool of people to appoint to committees. Yeah, I think that would be the Senate office, right? Yes. Uh, And I think we're actually uh, out of time. Um, So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.